0: Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's short review only episode of the show, we'll be talking about two new releases that follow plucky orphans on fantastical adventures towards unexpected domestic stability. <laughs> Steven Spielberg's blockbuster animated movie, The BFG, and Taika ATT's heartfelt New Zealand adventure comedy, Hunt for the Wilder People. These two movies are about as different as they come in style, direction, acting, and budget, but their stories both orbit around unlikely bonds between lonely, eccentric children and outwardly gruff, inwardly tender older men. And therefore, I think they make for an oddly appropriate pair for the show, or maybe even an orphan adventure double feature. (laughs) But before we dive into the differences, similarities, and relative merits of these two movies, I want to welcome to the studio my two regular Deep Focus fellow reviewers, WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman, and New Haven independent staff writer Alan Appel.
1: Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the for show. having us. It's
0: great to have you on. Okay, so one of the wonderful things about looking at seemingly unrelated movies in juxtaposition is that unexpected similarities often emerge, either in story or theme or style of filmmaking. We found that when we reviewed Ridley Scott's The Martian and Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, Alan, back in November, if you remember that pair, where... Two movies that revered the virtue of unassuming professional competence, uh, as well as during our double review of Miles Ahead and Born to be Blue just a few months ago, which offered a lot to think about when it comes to the role of drugs in music biopics.
2: I, I wasn't aware that we were in the midst of such a kind of what we used to call in English 101, compare and contrast.
0: And that's what it's all about, especially the the arbitrary similarities. Uh, that That's what I hope to do with this show. Um, but I, I believe that there are some similarities to be sussed out here as well, which may help us understand at least what, what make these movies tick or, or how we respond to them. So Taika Waititi's Hunt for the Wilder People follows a young wannabe gangster Maori child named Ricky Baker, played by Julian Dennison, who has been exiled from city life to the remote New Zealand bush, where he quickly finds himself the subject of a child services-led national manhunt, as he flees his new home with his curmudgeonly foster parent Heck, played by Sam Neill. Steven Spielberg's The The BFG, on the other hand, offers an adaptation of the beloved children's book by Roald Dahl that tells the story of a precocious young British girl who is plucked from her orphanage by a big, friendly giant after she sees him slinking around the dark streets of London, quietly blowing dreams into the hearts and minds of the city's sleeping public. So both of these movies are adventure stories. They're both about orphans who find escape from their loneliness and isolation through an unexpected friendship with an odd and somewhat forbidding older man. But I want to start our conversation in a slightly different place, slightly away from story and more on tone and storytelling. So about halfway through Wilder People, Ricky Baker and Heck find a quick respite at a lake at the top of a mountain. The lake, covered by clouds, surrounded by trees, seemingly touches the cloak of the sky, as one character puts it earlier in the movie. It's majestical, Heck says. And when Ricky tells him that that's not a word, that he's thinking of majestic, Heck shakes him off, saying that majestic doesn't have the same magic to it, and that majestical will do just fine. So, Lucy, my question for you at the top of the show is simply, which movie did you find more majestical, Hunt for the Wilder People or the BFG? And did that made-up adjective and whatever it means to you affect the way that you responded to either of these movies?
1: Yeah, I far and away Hunt for the Wilder People. Um, I, I think it's so rare to find a movie that is charming and heartfelt and also goes kind of deep. So at, at the core of this movie, and I hope this is something that we'll talk about, is not only this unlikely and beautiful friendship between these two guys, um, but also a, a story that's kind of heavy about the lengths to which a kid will go to get away from the Department of Child Services because someone isn't providing the right social infrastructure. And so, I, yeah, f- far and away, I, I thought it was charming and, um, and I, I also have to say, as someone who was an avid, avid reader of Roald Dahl, when I was a, a small person, although not much shorter than I am now, um, nothing will compare to those books and to what happens to them when, when they're paired with a, a child's imagination.
0: So I think that, and Alan, I'm curious to hear your response to this as well, but sitting with that, that word majestical for a second, because I think it captures what both filmmakers are trying to do in both of these movies. And and I wonder uh, if that struck you as a pivotal moment of *Hunt for the Wilder People* too, because it's a moment of kind of rare serenity for the two. They have successfully escaped the child services manhunt for for the time being, and they're looking out at a lake—a lake that has importance in the context of the story because of the passing away of a, a figure earlier in the movie. But it's a moment of calm. It's a moment of beauty. But it's also a moment that kind of hints a upon the fantasy, the fantasy that Ricky has of living this extravagant lifestyle of escaping from society, of being a gangster. Um, but also a, a a calmer and kind of more childish fantasy. One that I think is visualized beautifully in the BFG, but perhaps is not as embedded in the central relationship, uh, of the BFG. But just that, did did Dimajestical come to mind at all when you were thinking about these two movies?
2: Well, well, Tom, I want to go on record, uh, uh, the most important thing I'm going to say during this program is that Lucy is a dead ringer for Matilda in the Roll Dahl novel and not, uh, Sophie, uh, in, in, in this. Um, so, well, it's interesting what you say about Majestical because in, in both the movies, and I, I love the idea of talking about both these movies as a kind of group or, 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 a, a um, a phenomenon, um,
0: a double feature. A double
2: feature, yeah. Which we don't have. We don't have anymore. I used to look forward to the double features, um, but 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 they both mangle language, and you're supposed to assume that kids get chuckles out of of, of uh, 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 people uh, uh, mangling language. Um, so uh, my answer to your to your to your your question about. Um, uh, majestical. I think. I think the um, uh, hunt for the Wilder people works works best when it's both silly and touching. At moments when people could make fun of language or they could uh, play against uh, um, quotations from other films, of which there are huge amounts in this. Um, uh, alas, uh, there aren't that many moments when that when that fine line between what's, what's, what's touching in, in the, in the you know, child, um, parent relationship, um, in hunt for the wilder people, um, is, is really deeply felt. Um, there, th- there are a few great surprises in the film, but, um, golly, um, I, I, I think, um, the film's, uh, humor really, um, uh, you know, undercuts the touchingness of it. It, 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 uh, and um, uh, I'm talking about Hunt for the Wilder People, and as far as as far as BFG goes, uh, th- that has real problems, real problems. I mean, I, I love some role doll also, but um, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what's interesting is Sophie. Uh, one doesn't experience a sense of her danger, although you're supposed to. And also, frankly, when you think about it, Ricky is so full of haiku and such splendid anti-stereotype sophistication that that kid is in charge from the get-go. And he also, in in many ways, is someone who's going to survive. They're both going to survive. And unlike L- Lucy, I mean, Matilda, uh, <laughs> who really, really is at risk in that wonderful Roald doll novel, and she's in a kind of real situation, um... These movies don't evoke that kind of tenderness and uh, sense of identification for identification for me, although they each in their own way have um, kind of auxiliary virtues.
0: Lizzie, I think it, it's interesting to think about where both of these movies end up, because they end up in pretty similar spots where the orphan finds him or herself kind of embedded within a reconstituted family. Uh, In Hunt for the Wilder People, the orphan is adopted by a somewhat kind of equally eccentric uh, group that he finds in the New Zealand Zealand bush, uh, who are also willing to accept his foster parent hack. And then at the end of the BFG, we have uh, Sophie seemingly becoming part of the royal family uh, (laughs) of of England. But I, I think that one of the things I so appreciated about Hunt for the Wilder People over the BFG, and not necessarily that you have to compare the two, but in terms of dealing with similar stories and how they end up at similar points, I found that the resolution of the plot in Hunt for the Wilder People was seemed so much more uh, character based, and everything in Hunt for the Wilder seemed so much more character based. The humor, uh, the the plot twists, uh, the the dialogue, the relationship, everything seemed to be kind of emerging from this. This thoroughly unique character of Ricky Baker, who uh, names his dog, dog Tupac, who who th- wants to be into rap because he thinks it's something cool that kids do, uh, who also expresses himself via haikus, not just because someone else told him to, but because he finds it an authentic outlet for his frustration and creativity. Um, but also the, I mean, the the most tender moments for me are are the moments where he kind of reflects upon the suddenness and the inexplicability of loss in childhood, how there's no, you know, people don't disappear because they're kidnapped by giants. Uh, People don't disappear because uh, there is a rational explanation for, you know, all of a sudden the mother is dead or all of a sudden a friend is is no longer uh, around or visible. And I found everything in Hunt for the Wilder People, especially kind of leading up to that ending of being, you know, having a somewhat, Of happy, familiar resolution for him was all driven by things that we were learning about Ricky throughout. With the BFG, I felt like it was just kind of an arbitrary plot machination where at the end we need, you know, so we know that Sophie wants to be a part of a family because she's an orphan and she's just kind of dropped into this one arbitrarily. Um, I think there's a lot that the BFG does right, but in terms of uh, where these two movies end up, did you feel like one earned that ending more than the other or? Or do you feel pretty, pretty happy with where both ended up?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, th- I think your your question gets at this, Tom. But to talk about where something ended up, of course, you have to talk about its uh its point of conception and hunt for the wilder people. And, and also, you know, you either have round characters or you have flat characters. And very rarely is something just sort of hanging in that gray area in between. I think with hunt for the wilder people, it it came from a space where the d- director and the writer sat down and, and said, this is, this is something that I'm going to, this is a story I'm, I'm going to, to make happen. And it's, it's part fantasy and it's rooted in reality. And I think the characters become really, really round because they have to be to make this sort of niche movie work. Whereas in the BFG, it so it's, it's beginning point is, um, is of course the book and, and you know, maybe I'm harping on this a little bit, but I think there was an assumption that if, if you have a great children's book that maybe has aged well, maybe hasn't aged so well, Alan, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that. Um, and, and you throw in some cool CGI and you have interested audiences and kids who are out of school for the summer. That's enough to be, uh to be kind of the harbinger of, of success for the film. Um I'm I'm yeah, I, I mean I just wasn't crazy about the, the BFG and, and I don't think it earned really anything. I, I mean I, I told you this after we saw it, Tom. I thought it was kind of like drinking a very cool, very needed glass of water on a particularly hot day, um, in that it, it was pleasant and it sort of just washed over me and then it was gone.
2: Well, you're both being very kind to these films. It's, it's, you know, the only... Uh,
0: Talk it, me through some of your reservations about Hunt for the Wilder People because I was pretty unreservedly happy with are, the right. smallness of okay. it, the humility on, of it. I'm on
2: the curmudgeon stool today. <laughs> I'm sitting high up here and uh, I was, we,
1: we love you on that stool, So on
2: the, on the curmudgeon stool. Um, uh, 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 so let me say what I, what there are things that I really loved about it. And I was so taken by the opening scene. I, I just could, I love the opening sequence where... Um, uh, and uh, both, uh, from a directorial point of view, um, uh, and, and, um, how much information was conveyed when, when, uh, nurse ratchet or whoever she is, the, uh, the social worker shows up, uh, and, and with an, with an inept policeman and they, and they ineptly examine, uh, the place where the, the boy is going to be stashed in his new foster home. Uh, so much information conveyed, you know, he's, uh, the way she describes him, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's a litterer.
0: He's <laughs> that wonderful fire. Mod- montage uh, of misbehavior, right? Misbehavior, he kicks things, and he graffitis could, things, right, he steals and
2: he's things. Kinda, he's, and and uh, he's kind of, uh, you know, with his hoodie up, he uh, establishes his, his personality and you know, he's going to run away. Um, um, but right at the end of the scene, uh, up comes, you know, crocodile Dundee with a wild boar on his head. And the his eyes meet the um, uh, hect- hex eyes, and, there's, and and you know that um, the connection is a huge amount of information, wonderfully conveyed, mellifluous camera movement.
0: And we should say, even before that, we have the helicopter kind of aerial shots of the New Zealand bush, right? So we're immediately situated within this remote, right. kind of personless environment, right. a beautiful landscape, but also completely right. alien to this city right. this I was city buying youth, popcorn right? and I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you for... Well, there that. were a number of shots that were kind of right. aerial overviews. Right, that's another...
2: The, well, anyway, my, my problem... Uh, so now I'm back on the curmudgeon stool. The problem is that that kind of full... Um, emotional um, visual um, communication it uh, just just um, really goes totally slack in the rest of the film and and most of the movie uh, you know very very frankly is a kind of um, it it it, uh, it it to me it just operates on a kind of Saturday Night Live level of humor with lots of sketch comedy playing against everybody's uh, at least it it, it, it except for the relationship between Ricky and the, and, and the parents, which uh, in his relationship with Auntie, um, to me, another one of the wonderful things about this movie is that this angelic relationship uh, is established. And, it, you know, it's like every kid's dream. It's like a perfect roll doll moment, which he never creates in his film. <laughs> but she dies, and it's brilliant if it's carried off. But it seems to me that the movie drops a huge emotional octave at that point. And then the rest of the film is got so much a uh, kind of Sasha Baron Cohen. It's got a lot of car chases. It's got a lot of, um, uh, apocalypse now uh, helicopters. Uh, uh, Oh, wait a second. Oh, that's the BFG. That's apocalypse now li- uh, lifting the giants. But, but I mean, it just seems to me that, 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 um, the hunt for the wilder people just loses all its emotional power in, in trying to um, play against type to have the, uh, have the foster kid uh, be so intelligent and, ha- and, and, um, and nurse ratchet uh, as the social worker um, uh, and all the silly adventures they have. I mean, these are send ups of deliverance and it's, it's one, it's like the guy, it's like the, th- th- and then he's they spend uh, you know millions of dollars on these uh, these desert chases and the preposterousness of the entire country um hunting for the wilder people is just uh, as i say it just pulls the rug out from whatever the tender relationships are but it keeps on emerging in 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 part in his relationship with uh, with with Hector and then finally when he distributes uh, auntie's ashes at the lake that uh, the location that you mentioned seems to me to be the emotional high point. And then the movie goes on for 25 more minutes <laughs> and it's a total waste of uh, time. So yep. that's my curmudgeon's down. I know I can take Waititi a deep breath has... and go on to the other one, but <laughs> but it's fun. It's a send-up, but it's a movie by a very young filmmaker who's trying to find a voice and can't try, quite figure out what this movie is hmm. that he started.
0: Well, this so the, we should say the filmmaker's name is Ta- Taika Waititi, right. and uh even though he is quite kind of a young and new face to us, he is one of the Best known New Zealand filmmakers around, which I think is, I think that's that statement alone is worth commenting upon and he here. he made
2: your list last
0: year. He did, what, with What We Do in the Shadows. It was just one of my favorite movies, a, a vampire mockumentary, uh, co directed by Taiko ITV. i see another
2: movie of his because he's, he, I love his sense, the sense of humor is wonderful, but the, but you know, you could go out and have some popcorn and come back and not miss a whole lot.
0: Well, I love the, I mean, you comment upon the preposterousness of a uh, whole national manhunt, you know, the whole army being mobilized to chase after Ricky. And I feel like that is part of, we we see that in What We Do in the Shadows. We see that in uh, Jermaine Cl- Clement, his co-director for What We Do in the Shadows with his comedy folk duo, Flight of the Concords. I, I love how they're... they're kind of ribbing at their home country through the excess of the stories that they tell about it, saying, you know, in New Zealand, such a small place where they're, you know, more sheep than people, a place where Lord of the Rings was filmed, you know, this this gargantuan kind of mythic scale story. But in fact, quite a, when we say New Zealand's, you know, one of more, New Zealand's more popular filmmakers, that doesn't necessarily register on the scale of kind of Hollywood popularity. But to comment upon the, the, you know, the size of the country being manageable enough that if, and maybe the excessive response uh, feasible enough that with just one person lost, the only place in the world where the army, the entire army would be mobilized to look at, you know, try to find that person would be New Zealand, I, I find. and
2: Well, that's one of the treats of the movie to have all this New Zealandiana in it. But, 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 I, but, I but also would,
0: with the child's kind of dis, the stories descend into more and more of a, a fantasy, a pop culture fantasy uh, imagined by Ricky Baker, all delivered with the same level of realism until you get to a kind of Mad Max style car chase or but, Thelma and Louise car chase. But, but the there's end. no
2: realism here. This is, this is all kind of a very broad brushed satire. I mean, and, and, and I would even argue that, that e- even though it's set in New Zealand and God knows there's a wonderful a tradition of New Zealand Anzac filmmaking, you know, Gallipoli, uh, a million wonderful films in Australia and New Zealand. The, the thing that really is almost uh, uh, f- kind of frightening in the era of globalization, if you will, is there's a kind of globalized sense of humor here. Everybody has seen the movies that this movie is quoting, is riffing on. Everybody has seen that car chase. Everybody has seen that everybody leap in the truck and escape. Everybody has seen the three lunatic guys in the uh, bunkhouse, but I don't think there's two on their heads. I mean, or
0: I don't see how that's different from uh, Godard and Breathless having his Jean-Paul Belmundo character, you know, aping Humphrey Bogart in his you know petty crimes around Paris. And these are the cultural imperialism, imperialism in the United States through movies is something that isn't just. Uh, you know late 20th century early 21st century i think this has been happening for the duration of hollywood and the way that international filmmakers respond to the kind of pervasiveness of these uh, Cultural, you know, these filmic motifs or something. I think is really interesting, especially if I mean this director, who's in his 30s or 40s, grew up with these big 80s style action movies and chase movies. These are the movies that he was kind of weaned on, and so I find it at least uh, appropriate that he would be responding to them. Um, I don't know if he can be blamed for the uh, how much of an impact American pop culture had on him. No, but, uh, in but New my Zealand. point
2: is that it, it's it's he's, he's it's starting off with what. It seems to me like a wonderful, very localized, if you will, you know, mm. a more, more Maori boy in this situation, and he's he's got is there's a wonderful story to tell here if he'd stuck with it, mm. but he was kind of seduced by all the, all the movies that he's seen, and he they're still they're like, it seems to me they're like sort of cobwebs in his head, that that uh, got in the way of his running with the wonderful setup that he made.
0: I mean, I I don't know about. You, I'm interested to hear you uh, chime in on this, Lizzie, because for me, that struck me as authentic to how someone like Ricky Baker would actually process whatever trauma or experience of life that he's going through. I mean, y- if someone, yeah. a nine-year-old aspiring to be Tupac or at least own a dog named Tupac, I think would naturally <laughs> think that uh, his life is devolving into or maybe elevating up to an American uh, action car chase. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I I mean, I, I, I think when we're talking about being either trapped or uh, very happily within this cycle of references, right? Endless, endless references, you get this funny and wonderful and quirky picture that is also a lot smarter and a lot less twee than someone like Wes Anderson um, of a kid's sense of reference frame and his sense of urgency. I think over and over of the scene where he's trying to motion to heck that so they're hiding and there's a police chase and um and and he needs to tell Heck who's right next to him that this reminds him very much of the Lord of the Rings. And it's like this is the most urgent thing that he can think of right now. And um and and that's wonderful because you're transported to that space of like, oh yeah, that happened that happened to me once. But also this space of oh th- this is this kid's frame of reference and um so we know from the movie that he's someone who's always reading but we also know that he's an avid listener and that he has consumed a lot of his uh, his knowledge or what he thinks of as his base of knowledge through pop culture and, and through listening to rap hip hop r&b and also probably pop music which he doesn't talk a lot about um, and and then from books he's reading and there are so many times in the movie when he says this is just like you know, insert X here, I thought that was wonderful.
0: Alan, in the BFG, uh, the reference points are not necessarily Thelma and Louise or uh, Apocalypse Now, or or maybe it is. Maybe maybe you did see some Apocalypse Now, but rather uh, Charles Dickens and specifically Nicholas Nicholas Nickleby. But this, there are a few. Kind of reference, you know, I think that maybe there are even more references to other Steven Spielberg movies than there are to movies out, you know, other pop culture kind of on the periphery of the Steven Spielberg world. But before we get to the visual style of the BFG, because I think that is one thing well worth praising, if in Hunt for the Wilder People, we have an older character who is illiterate and who is, I don't know, maybe coming to terms with uh, the way that his illiteracy is either humiliating for him or keeps him from fully connecting with this boy. Here we have a big friendly giant who is quite literate. He picks up a magnifying lens and at one point is able to read the book, but he also has his own idiosyncratic way of of speaking. What What did you think of the way that the BFG speaks in this movie, the interaction between a precocious kind of highly articulate little girl and the, I guess more cockney or working class style, or at least explicitly uneducated uh, BFG. Was that a, was there a delight in wordplay in this movie for you? Did you think it had anything interesting to say about class relationships between these two people or was it all just uh, taken from the book and, and it was important to include because it was from the book.
2: Well, I, I don't remember the book. Uh, I'm not even sure if I read it, um, but I certainly don't remember it. And I don't know how it works on the page, but I, you know, I asked myself what's supposed to be funny about this. Uh, uh, I, and I just, uh, I, I guess uh, it occurred to me that th- 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 this is sort of uh, kind of uh, uh, unintelligible Cockney accents uh, take, take, taken to the nth degree um, is he making fun of people who live in the, in, in, uh, uh, uh Wales or something? I don't know. I, I don't know where, where I, I think he is. It, was Roald Dahl Welsh. I don't even, I'm not even sure, but, uh, I just, uh, I don't get it. Um, the land uh, of the giants
0: I, seemed to be North of Scotland based well, on the and map. That the, and really those nine it, right?
2: giants certainly were wearing kind of kilts, you know, it's like they, they were like extras from Macbeth or something. And, um so maybe it's a, maybe it's a send-up of the Scots um you know roll Dahl was full of a lot of uh uh peeves um uh sometimes rising to the level of hatreds which uh, Steven Spielberg when I heard his interview at at, uh, at um on TV about this movie somebody asked him about the anti-semitism that roll doll is is a, uh, known for and uh, to have made uh, uh, in certain situations. And he said, I don't want to talk about it. Um, but um, so the short answer to your question is that the, you know, the uh, uh, satire is a, is a, is a, is a dangerous thing. And, and um, I don't know what the object of that particular satire is. It, it wasn't funny to me. And unlike a lot of movies that I go to look at for deep focus, which uh, that gets me into the criterion bow tie cinema at one o'clock in the afternoon when I'm there alone, this was a holiday weekend. And they were, I said, this is great because there are kids, there are families. And I was listening for the kids to laugh and they didn't. And I'll tell you where the first public laugh was, which to me was, and, and it just proved, uh, I, 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 and this gets back to your um, question about quotations. The movie has no gas. It just has these attempts at humor, I guess. It picks up when um, the BFG uh, uh, goes to the Queen or Margaret Thatcher. And that's the and from there, Roald Dahl is lifting page for page from Gulliver's Travels. It's Lili, it's Lilliput. Uh, and when he drinks the tea out of this giant bathtub that they bring him, and he hates the tea and he spits it out and it falls all over the staff and the whole place erupts at the Criterion Bowtie Cinema. And then the movie is very funny. But the movie starts to be funny when there are interactions between uh, the BFG and regular people. Up to that point, it's it's got serious structural problems.
0: And the humor is pretty specifically like scatological. <laughs> I mean, we you're right. I We were laughing at the movie when characters were farting green gas and and you know pushing them when the corgis are kind of pushing themselves right. around the floor of the palace because of their drinking all of the the fizzy drinks that go down instead of up i mean in if i was laughing at moments in hunt for the world of people when uh ricky is reciting one of his haikus and and the and the foster mom is Desperately asking him to stop because even though it follows the structure of the haiku, it's just, I hate my friend. I hate my friend really bad. You know, here, the human, you know, I think in the maybe what is coming through in the style of speaking of the BFG is that even though he is you know, on the face of it uneducated and has a lot of you know trouble with words he never really struggles to find a word that is appropriate for the situation it's he struggles to find a word that is appropriate to uh, the english language and so the malapropisms are perhaps more appropriate than uh than whatever sophie or the queen or whoever else may try to impose i mean the the words that he comes up with uh they're often silly but they belie, you know, and intelligence and a warmth underneath, and an actual, you know, I don't know about intellectualism, but he's certainly someone who who thinks and feels deeply, as opposed to, you know, heck, who's trying to remove himself as much as possible from a part of social life that he feels like he just can't participate in. But when w- you...
2: when the BFG meets the Queen, he says, uh, ma-
0: um, "Magister, <laughs> I am your humbug servant." <laughs> 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 which got a laugh from me as all. Um, but I want to talk about the the animation for a second because I thought that really was something that was spectacular. In this, I mean, Steven Spielberg's done at least one other animated movie in The Adventures of Tintin. I'm not sure if he's done any others, but this one was a combination of CGI animation and live action with everything in the world of giants being animated and everything in the world of people being live action. And most of it, is I imagine the actress who played Sophie just against a, a green screen, trying to act against whatever puppets may be in the room because she's submerged entirely in this beautifully realized uh, giant's lair and field and mountain and cave. Uh, did you respond to the visual style of this at all, Lucy? Was that a, a point of delight for you or were you just kind of slogging along with the plot?
1: It was okay. It's um I I, I don't like animation. I, I just, like, don't. I I don't like animation. There's a special place in my heart for Disney Pixar. uh, The Pixar part of it being the operative word, but um, I'm I'm not a fan of CGI and I'm wary of it very often. Um, I I mean, I I think when you consider the technological work that went into this movie, it's extremely admirable um, because every single frame has many, many, many subframes, if not many thousand subframes. So to think about the the you know tiny people behind the scenes working on this and and really like putting their all into it um was was something that gave me pause but it it wasn't a world that I found super enchanting I mean can I can we go back to the the words thing for a second because I think those two are actually a little bit related in that this ultimately is it's a delightful adaptation. If you're a small child and your parent wants to, you know, dump you in a, a dark movie theater for a little while and get some mental rest. Um, but beyond that, it it's an adaptation of something that I think is meant to be shared. So it's a story of a very unlikely friendship between a girl and this giant. And it's, it's meant to, I think either be read by a, a kid or be shared between a, uh, an adult or an older sibling um, or a guardian parent and, and a child where, you know, different people are doing different voices. I sound like such an old fogey right now. Um, but, but this, I, I mean, for me it lost its magic. And so having something that was so manufactured on top of that was just this reminder that I'm, I'm a grown up looking at this story that is no longer magical to me because I know so much more about the world.
0: Alan, if if there are a few images that really stick with me and resonate with me from Hunt for the Wilder People, there are at least a dozen or uh, 10 that that I remember from the BFG as ones that I just want to sit with that solitary image and, and ruminate upon. For example, when the BFG... Um, picks up his kind of dream trumpet and blows a dream into the mind of a little boy sleeping in uh, an apartment in the streets of London. And we see a shadow play of his dream come to life on the wall behind him. And we see the the president calling his home, the president of the United States calling his home and his dad picks up and he's in disbelief. And all of this is played out just in silhouette on the wall while we see the kid sleeping in his bed, smiling and, you know, his mind kind of following through as, as the dream progresses. But that, uh, and again, with the escape of the BFG through the streets of London early in the movie, when he hides himself as a shadow or as an empty storefront. Oh, that's uh, brilliant. The way that
2: opens up. Yeah.
0: The way, I mean, it's, it feels like it's right out of a picture book, but it also feels right. so, um, Unique to the movies to what Spielberg is able to accomplish through this moving image adaptation of an otherwise kind of inert story i I found just just breathtaking I mean how do you respond to the visual style of this? well
2: you you it, for, it, until in, until um the BfG becomes Gulliver and interacts with uh, at Buckingham Palace, the only real interest for me maybe because I'm not you know nine years old anymore. The, the real interest is the technology and, and the, you know, the, the way he goes about doing it. And I guess also the, um, Mark Ryland's face is his, it's his real face surrounded by these weird animated, you know, CGI ears and the whole CGI world around him. But I, you know, I'm, I'm partial to what, what Lucy says. I mean, I, I, You know, cartoons are cartoons and should be cartoons and movies with people should have movies with people. And I've never been comfortable with the mixing of the two. I remember, um, what was that movie uh, with Bob Hoskins and uh, Who Killed Roger Rabbit? Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I think was one of the first ones that mixed, you know, very sophisticated um, um, uh, animated characters with people. And it was... It was just that you marveled at the, at the, at the technology, but like, you know, like the sound of the early modems that screeched, you wanted, you acknowledged it and you wanted it to go away and the thing to be, to be smoothed out. I mean, I, I loved the cartoons as a kid. I mean, I loved, uh, you know, Wile E. Coyote and Bugs Bunny. I still have a Bugs Bunny chair, but I, you know, the, the mixing of these things for me is really problematical. Um, and especially in a movie where the whole premise is a dream. So it's sort of not happening, but it is happening. Um, And, you know, that, 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 that to me just, um, uh, you know, is just the overall frame of inconsistency. Plus in the wonderful scenes that you quoted where, where the giant has to disguise himself as a lamppost or whatever, he's so lithe, he's like a young Olympic athlete. And then, You meet him, and he's a Methuselah, and he's an old man, and that's very inconsistent Mm -hmm. to me. So it's as if the filmmakers don't care about those kinds of continuities and those kinds of reality-based things as long as they get the
0: Pixar right. One of the things that I, I really appreciate about Steven Spielberg's approach to animation, and this is true in The Adventures of Tintin as well, which I did not like as a movie, but there are moments where he brings his his uh, kind of bravura camera work and his filmmaking sensibility to an otherwise completely artificially constructed uh, and illustrated scenes, such as the uh, invasion of the BFG's home by the other giants when they're sniffing around looking for Sophie. And it, the camera kind of simulates, even though of course there is no actual camera looking at a scene unfolding before it it simulates an unbroken take where we follow Sophie kind of falling through this waterfall of a, a water slide around the cave and as the camera you know follows her through each step of that process we see different actions unfolding in different parts of the scene and there are no cuts for a good you know 30 or 45 seconds we are completely you know ...pushed along by the movement of Sophie's body around the cave... ...but we also pick up so much of what's, you know, the action and activity in the cave through the way that the camera or at least a simulated camera kind of glides along with the the water slide and the same is true at, at the very end the fight between the giants over Sophie it gets a bit confusing and kind of inane at the end but as we see Sophie running you know under the feet of these giants or up the hills or the helicopter swooping in and the way that Spielberg brings this sense of uh, kind of epic filmmaking that he you know, perfects in movies like Indiana Jones, uh, you have that simulated here in animation, and yet it also takes advantage of you know, you know the capacity of animation that one cannot use in in real life, such as playing with scale. I mean, where we have Sophie so much smaller than the BFG, and then the BFG so much smaller than the other giants. Um,
2: but, right, but you don't. But 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 what does all that get you? I mean, you never feel she's really in peril ever.
0: I I think that's a problem with the the delivery of the story and the pacing of the story more so than the animation. I mean, there are moments of kind of delight and, and terror as well in, in uh, I think, capable, that animation is capable of, but when it is used at the service of a story that just kind of slogs along. Yeah, these, I, and
2: his, right, he, he's got this bravura technique, but it does go on, these scenes go on very long. You, mm-hmm. you know, I just wanted to talk about yeah, you talked about favorite scenes. I love, I love hands, and the, the giant's hands. And um, Lucy will will see quotations from art history where, <laughs> they, when they finally become best friends, you know, the finger is extended, and that's pure Michelangelo, right, from the Sistine Chapel, God. And I mean, when the humans. BFG p-
0: reaches through the window of the orphanage to pluck Sophie from her bed, that right, great it's hand, the hand is of, there. Yeah.
2: and that's also very much the hand of King Kong and Fay Ray. I mean that's sort of a kind of wonderful thing because it's both a monster, but it's also the hand of God, uh, and you can get a that's the way you that's the way animation can can pack a lot of information visually when, and 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 you know and sometimes it just comes out of the. The mind of the of the cinematographer, the director, is just informed by those images,
0: and so much is communicated through the facial expressions of the Mark Rylance character. I mean, I'm not sure to what extent his face is actually incorporated into that that representation, but there's such warmth in every crease of that face, and uh, I I think it's I mean, Rylance was one of our favorite actors from last year in The Bridge of Spies. From the bridge he of Spies the, he, and he stole the that Russian, from Tom Hanks. And right. I,
2: it, I he he steals it from that little little yeah, girl, definitely, but definitely. Yeah. Because he he's got the only real emotional issue in this movie, which is uh, his uh, he, he, you know some some kid previous friend of his got eaten. That's why he's the kid who had the the red coat that Sophie puts on. So he right. must protect Sophie at all costs.
0: Lucy, any final thoughts on whether the BFG is worth checking out, or one should just go straight to the Doll, or whether Hunt for the Wilder People is devolves into SNL style comedy or is actually an affecting kind of emotional adventure comedy. Oh yeah.
1: I mean, as far as the BFG, I, I would say skip the $11 movie ticket, go straight for the book or, or don't go for the book and go for Matilda instead. Um, and I just want to mention really quickly, one thing that we haven't talked about, uh, which is I, I absolutely endorse hunt for the wilder people a thousand percent. But also because in ter- in, you know, in terms of race, so the BFG is a movie uh, in which the cast, I think, does not have a single person of color. And Hunt for the Wilder People is also a film that is in part about being Maori in New Zealand without ever explicitly being, a, uh, without ever explicitly saying it is about being Maori in New Zealand. And I think it. it about being a
2: fat Maori. New Zealand. I, we but, haven't discussed that but, which is but i think also it, very interesting aspect yeah. of this film
1: but I, I i think it does something interesting i I think it goes a lot deeper than surface level snl comedy and i absolutely absolutely recommend it for listeners it's well worth the whatever 11 dollars and uh 90 minutes or two hours
0: recommendations would you recommend both either neither? oh yeah
2: i mean those these these movies are these movies are uh harmless to uh to 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 uh you know, entertaining and certainly um, hunt for the wilder people is, is uh, a, a lot more satisfactions, but I think it's six or $7 is, is better than 11 for sure.
0: <laughs> well, I think our orphan adventure double feature has been reserved. So Alan, Lucy, thanks so much for uh, coming in and, and talking through these two movies with me.
1: Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom.
0: All right. So that was the BFG and hunt for the wilder people. And you've been listening to deep focus on WNHHLP 103.5 one of 3.5 FM Coming up next, Elisa's Cocktail Hour.